Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, do Canadians feel comfortable prioritizing their mental health at work without fear of facing stigma? Oksana Kischuk, a consultant with Abacus Data, joins us with those details. We also get the latest on the devastating tornado that hit Barrie yesterday from Global's Mark Carcassil. An expert says there are 65 more hectares of land to search at the former residential school site in Kamloops, B.C. that might reveal more than the original 215 unmarked graves. We'll talk about the ramifications of that. And the World Health Organization wants more access to virus data from China as they continue to search for the origins. What are the chances? <laughs> it's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Put a lot of talk in the last uh, couple of weeks about returning to work. I know we're in, in step three now of our, of our recovery program here in Ontario, but some companies are talking to set dates about, well, when are people going to get back? Because a lot of us have been working remotely in the last little while. But we also know that we've been, a lot of us have been dealing with some uh, some mental health issues, uh, dealing with the pandemic and the stress that it has caused. And there's always a concern about what's this transition going to be like to get back to work after, in, in some people's cases, more than a year. Well, uh, Oksana Kischuk is a consultant at Abacus Data, and she's done some work on this. And uh, the report, by the way, is on their webpage, abacusdata.ca. But I wanted to bring on uh, Oksana just to talk a little bit about what she's found and uh, the impact that it's having. Oksana, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me this morning. Uh, now, you mentioned at the beginning here, but your, your motivation for doing this in the first place, this is another transition, and, and we've gone through a lot of transition, many of them traumatic in the life, but is there, is there some trepidation, some nervousness about getting back into the workplace and maybe, you know, expressing to people or being honest with people about how you're feeling these days, especially from an emotional standpoint? Yeah, I think definitely. I think that, I mean, this past year has been a challenge for so many people in so many different ways, pandemic aside, but also the pandemic, and so I think just the state of mind that people are coming back into the workplace is likely a lot different um, than it was when they left, just based on what people have been through. But also in the conversations we've been having, there's I, I feel like there's been a lot more conversations about mental health more generally and how we can make sure that we're having work-life balance and all that kind of stuff kind of came to the forefront. A lot of, a lot of us struggled to kind of transition to work from home or, or for some of us not work at all during this time. And so I think everyone's kind of entering back into the workplace and a bit of a different place about kind of what they feel about their mental health, maybe how their mental health has changed, but then also about having a conversation about it um, with their coworkers and kind of being able to discuss it openly. Are they going to be comfortable with that conversation? Because in the past, it's been difficult to, to actually own up and say, yeah, you know what, i got a problem. I've got some concerns here. There is yeah, a stigma. There is a stigma, isn't there? There was, sure. anyway. And that's what I, I mean, that's honestly kind of what I went into these questions about was that this conversation isn't something that we really hear about happening a lot in workplaces. And so I, I thought the results were going to be a lot different um, than they were and that people would be a lot less comfortable. I mean, certainly people aren't very, very comfortable, but they, they do say that we like we find that uh, three quarters of Canadians say working Canadians say that they can be open about their mental health. Um, without facing stigma in the workplace, which is actually like a, a great, a great statistic yeah. to find a, a nice surprise. I think um, people feel like their employer respects kind of time off for mental health, the same as sort of a physical health need. That was another big shock to me was that um, maybe there's a, a changing conversation about um, taking these kinds of needs more seriously among employees. The other element to this that I, as you wrote in the report, is uh, the attitude of employers, which. I, from what I see here from the data, I surmise it's changed a lot over the last number of years. Uh, they seem far more open to having discussions about mental health issues with their employees uh, and, and, and some empathy about what they as employers can do to try to help them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was also kind of a welcome change was that there's sort of that facilitation to have that conversation, to take that time, to take that space. Um, definitely more among older employees who are maybe more comfortable in their jobs, um, maybe more job security, I think probably has a little bit to play with that. Younger employees are a little bit less kind of confident opening up about that, but still a large majority of people say that that's a conversation that their employers is willing to entertain, which is great. You just raised a very interesting point about that, and that's the demographic, the age demographic. Uh, younger employees <laughs> may be a little reticent to get involved in this, and, and uh, job security may be one of it, but the other is upward mobility. Uh, that goes back to that whole thing about stigma, doesn't it, Oksana? That yeah, they may exactly. be worried that, hey, if I'm going to get labeled as somebody who you know crumbles under pressure, I mean, that's the worst-case scenario. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, those, those phrases have been used before. You know, am yeah. I going to be able to rise through the company? Yeah, and I think that, like, as much as the findings are good, I think it is interesting, that point about younger people feeling that stigma, and also some gender differences. So we see that young men are more likely to feel that stigma when it comes to just talking about their mental health, whereas young women are more likely to feel stigma when it comes to taking time off for for mental health needs. So I think exactly what you're saying, that sort of upward mobility and maybe seeming like you're weak for taking time off, is that, that people who are younger are a lot more nervous to kind of make that step that leap but it's good to see that kind of middle-aged and and older employees are are definitely feeling that comfort so hopefully that kind of trickles down um, to to younger workers especially kind of after the pandemic where we've had such open conversations about mental health while we've all been at home and that we can kind of translate that conversations to the workplace as well. The fact that males seem far more difficult to to try to to deal with their own issues here is that just a little bit of machismo coming through that I, I'm, I'm tough and I can I can work my way through this I don't need anyone's help. Yeah, I mean, looking at the results, I think it kind of like the stereotypes kind of ring true on, on that statistic is that they don't want to sort of feel like that <laughs> that kind of almost that it's weak to talk about that, um, which is which is too bad and hopefully that kind of changes. But I think it's definitely still there and and that much is more paired with like a fear of of speaking about it and feeling weak um, in terms of kind of job security and moving up and that kind of thing as well. So I guess one of the takeaways here is we as a society and seem a lot more comfortable talking about this than we did, well, pre-pandemic for certain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, and, and talking about it at home, talking about it, just admitting that you're sort of facing some struggles, I think is a huge, huge piece. And we found that kind of in some earlier research that I did. So then being able to have those conversations and taking mental health concerns seriously, I think is a great step. Well, and the idea that employers, as we said a second ago, seem far more uh, flexible about these sorts of things, uh, and mm-hmm. and that's going to be part of the conversation, really. I guess when they do go back, Oksana, uh, you know, yeah. do you really want to come back full time? Uh, would you be more comfortable if it was a fifty-fifty split, or were more comfortable working at home? Uh, I, I don't know that a lot of employers would have entertained that conversation two years ago, but they, they seem to open to having it now. Exactly. Yeah, I think that work from home, I think time off, all of that kind of stuff, time off for personal. Things, kind of our personal and work lives really collided, I think, during the pandemic, especially for people working from home. And so I think employers and employees are starting to realize that, that that's probably going to happen again and that uh, we need to sort of make sure that policies and, and things are in place um, that both kind of personal and work can kind of be respected and, and balanced there. There's another element to this that I was intrigued by, because you brought up, uh, for instance, the name uh, Naomi Osaka, of course, the incredible tennis player who just bowed mm-hmm. out and simply said, you know, I, I need the time off. And, and that, that mm-hmm. shocked an awful lot of people. Uh, it, it shouldn't have, but it did. I mean, she's a human being like everyone else, and, uh, it, and of course, you know, can be impacted by these sorts of pressures. Uh, 
but when you talk about stigma, and maybe the stigma is starting to, to loosen a little bit about us as individuals, but we still feel that these celebrities, these high-profile individuals, are probably going to be prone to that, that people are going to be judgmental about them if they, they, if they decide this, to come forward and say, look, I've got a problem here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of the other piece was if kind of personal and workplaces aside, do you think that people in the public eye sort of face backlash for speaking out about um, their kind of mental struggles and being open about that kind of side? And we found that, so we tested kind of a bunch of different people in the public eye, and every sort of one that we tested, at least half of Canadians say they face some, some stigma. So athletes, social media influencers, kind of lower down on the list, but actually what was top of the list for um, individuals facing stigma in the public eye is elected officials. Um, and politicians. And so I think that maybe speaks to, and, and CEOs are up there as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to whether or not we've had open conversations about mental health and those individuals um, and those, those people's in, people in those roles having the opportunity to speak about their challenges without, without backlash. I think um, Naomi is a good example of people in sort of sports being able to sort of start to, to speak a little bit about it and more news coverage and things like that. But there's other people and groups in the public eye that isn't really uh, a reality yet. And again, I think maybe that's a bias that a lot of us still have. That, that we feel mm-hmm. that you know, in in, in Naomi's case, um, she's an incredible athlete. She's on top of the world. She's making all kinds of money. Uh, you know, what pressure could she possibly be under? So for her to use that, just there's, it just doesn't make sense. And we hear that from other people too that are very successful. We do, we seem to think that 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 makes them you know. Uh, impermeable to, to, to stress and the same sorts of things that impact our lives. And I guess it's a shocking reality for us when we find out, yeah, that they, they can be impacted by this as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's it paired with that sort of success and that maybe they have kind of the ideal life that everyone wants. So again, yeah, like why would why would they feel stress and, and stigma? They should have the time and the money to, to be able to, to, to not have those struggles. But I think that um, the more that we talk about our own mental health struggles and understanding that um, everyone kind of goes through some stuff at some point um, that maybe these individuals are able to sort of speak about that as well and, and help uh, sort of make the conversation more normal too um, if, if these individuals are taking the time in, in the public space to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we've heard that and I've seen some of those, you know, those quotes on social media from people that are, are getting upset about this, not just with the Naomi, but with others mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. how could you be under stress? I, you know, I'm making mm-hmm. minimum wage and trying to pay the mortgage. Yeah. So what kind of stress are they under? Well, I guess exactly. it, it's all relative, I guess, depending on your circumstance. The elected yeah. official aspect of this I found interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's a connection there to say, yeah, yeah they, they'd be reticent and they're going to be stigmatized if they do this, uh, as if admitting that there are, there are mental health issues here would make them less capable of doing their job as elected officials. I, I, I find that difficult to try to, to rationalize, but I guess that's what some people are thinking. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes along with, with CEOs and that like they have all of this responsibility for, for people, for the government, all that kind of stuff. And so it's not their place to to struggle with that. <laughs> people don't want them to struggle with that, but I think it's important to remember that all of these people are human. Too. And and the, just because of that, they're likely to have some some challenges at some point. And so, um, being able to to talk about that, I think those two groups kind of have a, a long way to go for sure. Um, but even starting the conversation now, I think, is a great time as we kind of grasp our own sort of mental health struggles and how that fits in our lives. Um, to be able to do the the same for for people in the public eye, like like elected officials and CEOs and others. 
as I said, the uh, the report is uh, on, online, abacusdata.ca, uh, mental health, slash mental health at the workplace. Oksana, uh, great work on this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Oksana Kinschek, uh, consultant with Abacus Data. Uh, you're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, we were shocked uh, yesterday to see uh, some of the pictures of the devastation of uh, Barrie, uh, the city of Barrie, after they were uh, hit with a tornado. Uh, the warnings went out a, a, across a good part of the central part of the province yesterday, uh, and we heed those warnings. But, uh, well, we've seen uh, some of the video evidence of what's gone on here. And uh, Mark Carcassel joins us. Mark, of course, is a reporter and a news anchor uh, with Global news he's on the the scene there mark uh thanks so much for the time today uh what 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 do you see what's what's the status there now it's uh i think we're getting a clear picture now bill of exactly how bad the damage is here because you know many of the police blockades have been lifted uh, the sun is up the weather is clear very different picture weather-wise right now than it was uh just less than 24 hours ago i'll tell you that much but uh now we're uh we're in a part of uh southeastern barry uh near innisfil on uh couple streets one of them is called sun king crescent the other one is called majesty boulevard and it seems to sort of be the 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 center if you will of of where this all hit and it is mass damage i mean i don't like to go for any of the cliches so i won't use those but i can tell you that just walking through the streets those two streets particularly uh there's glass shingles pieces of wood stretches of fencing uh, kids' toys, garbage bins, pieces of barbecues, trampolines, uh, every type of debris you could think of just strewn about backyards, into the streets. Uh, and when you look at the amount of damage done, in some cases entire roofs blown off of homes, garages collapsed with cars in them, uh, cars almost spun around 180 and dented with their windows blown out, it's a wonder that there are only a handful of serious injuries and it's a wonder that, that no one died. I mean, there are sharp large pieces of wood strewn about that could have easily hit somebody especially when you consider the fact that you know speaking to people who live in the area today this happened so suddenly most of them didn't even realize it was about to happen and then when it did it was over in seconds i mean one person reported it being about five to ten seconds and it was over and they were left with this in the end so it's it's a really you know it's a catastrophic scene to uh, to watch people are strolling about some people outside their homes, assessing the damage to their own homes. Others who live in the general area but whose homes were okay, passing through just to see the scope of damage that their neighbors have have, uh, have had. And, of course, there's the lucky-loos who've been taking pictures as well. Absolutely. It, just as you see some of the the, the video of this, it, I mean, we've heard of this, and you've covered tornadoes. The one in Vaughan 10, 12 years ago was, was terrible as well. And, mm-hmm. you, and you see a few roofs torn off, and as you say, some trees uprooted and think, oh, that's awful. Uh, this had to be a pretty powerful tornado, because as you mentioned, total roofs torn off, some houses devastated, cars overturned. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it, it, it seems to me to be the, the worst possible case scenario. And, and as... as as you just mentioned, it's a, it's a a wonder, really, almost a miracle that nobody was seriously. I mean, there are some people with serious injuries, but nobody died in this. And and despite the fact that they got short notice, a lot of them seem to be able to take cover in the basements. Yeah, uh, that that seems to be the case, or at least we're making their way down when it hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, on that note about it being you know so amazing that everyone survived this, that's really how a lot of the people who've been worst affected by this, who I've spoken to this morning. Uh, and who we spoke to last night even seemed to be taking it at this point is, yeah, you know, I may have lost part of or all of my house and everything in it, but I woke up this morning, my family's alive, and, and that's how many people are, are looking at it now. And in terms of the damage, you're right, Bill, I have covered tornadoes in the past, the Vaughn tornado, 
the one in Angus, not far from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were bad. But in my own experience reporting, and I've been doing this 16 years now, this is the, the worst sort of weather damage I've, I've seen. Yeah, it, it brought back memories, and the people of Barrie could certainly tell you stories about the, the huge tornado that went there. I guess that was about 25 years ago, and, and really almost in the same area where you are right now, Mark, and mm-hmm. just tore a couple of neighborhoods apart, and, and whole whole neighborhoods were decimated and had to be rebuilt, and that took a long, long time. It took years uh, to get over this, and that's probably the same scenario here, I would think. I would think so. Um, you know, not only just the rebuilding process, but even getting to that uh, is, is always tough for families that have to go through this because you have to deal with insurance. There's always arguments as to, you know, uh, how much you're really owed, how bad the damage really is. Uh, there's some people who are still wondering if they, you know, their, their houses are sort of in between. They're damaged, but they're still standing, and they're waiting to see if they're structurally sound enough that, you know what, maybe they could go back in tonight. Uh, so there's a, a lot of waiting, a lot of talking with various officials uh, from municipal government, from the utilities, uh, from insurance companies and figuring out exactly what you could do and how you go forward. There's some people who already know, and you can tell just by looking at their houses, that that house is going to have to come down. And then there's other people who are waiting to see. You know, maybe maybe the roof can be repaired or maybe they got some damage, but the house might be wobbly and they need an engineer to check it out. So there's a lot of work to come, a lot of waiting. And, you know, I think many families are still in shock right now, but it's going to set in that there's a, there's a frustrating path to come. You also reporting as as bad as this was, as devastating as it was, even houses that may be not directly affected by the, the tornado itself. Uh, there was a huge power outage yesterday. How, what's the status? Have they got power back on? There was, I think, it was something like five hundred homes were impacted. Yeah, that was the number we were hearing this morning. I'll, truthfully, Bill, I don't know the exact number as to how many have been restored. I can tell you that even in this area, there are still various utility. Uh, crews going around and going into the hydro boxes and doing their work. So clearly there's still work to be done, and they're working on restoring it. But um, I know not everyone has had it restored because we just spoke to a gentleman about 20 minutes ago who says he's still on generator power right now. Uh, he's one of the fortunate ones who's been able to get into his house because most of the damage has been external. Uh, and so there are still people waiting for, for that as well. To some it may not matter because they can't get into their homes, but there are those who can who you know would like to have the lights on tonight. It's going to take a long time to get over this, if in fact they ever do. Uh, Mark, yeah. always a pleasure to have you on the program. We'll be watching for your reporting uh, later on at Global News at 5.30 and 6. And uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Will do. Thanks a lot, Bill. Anytime. Take care. Mark Carcassel, reporter and uh, news anchor with Global News. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. More discoveries this past week about, uh, well, unmarked graves at uh, sites of the residential schools over the last little while. A special uh, in-ground penetrating radar says there are nearly 650,000 square meters of land still to be surveyed before the total number of unmarked graves is confirmed at the site of Canada's largest residential school. It's a, a heart-sick story, but it's something that needs to be told and details that need to be uh, put forward so we can get a, 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 an understanding of exactly what has happened here and the ramifications upon generations upon generations of Indigenous people. Joining us to talk about this uh, is uh, Dr. Paulette Stevens. She's going to join us in just a minute. Uh, but I wanted to uh, play a clip of uh, what the Prime Minister had to say about this process. We recognize that it's just a beginning. Uh, We will continue to be there to allow uh, First Nations communities uh, to grieve, to heal, and to move forward uh, by identifying and responding to these uh, tragic discoveries as, uh, as they need to. 
Dr. Paulette Steves is a uh, Cree, Métis, Indigenous Archaeologist, Associate Professor of Sociology and Canada Research Chair in Healing and Reconciliation at Algoma University in, uh, here in Ontario. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you for having me. How extensive is this? Is I guess the question a lot of us are asking. You know, we we're told that there are thousands and thousands uh, of these. That uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee actually touched on that with their recommendations. Uh, a lot of this is coming to light right now. Uh, how important is it for us and for in, Indigenous peoples and for Canada as a whole, uh, Doctor, to to understand the breadth of this and, and actually get a total number as to what exactly happened here? Well. It's, it's extremely important. So First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people have always known that there were thousands of unmarked burials. Thousands of children died. But as far as understanding the breadth of this, the depth and the number, it could be in the tens of thousands. And I think it's very important for Canadians and for the world to understand um, that this was a genocide. And when you have a genocide, you have people withholding information on that, and you have a lot of undocumented burials. So we know that on a global scale. That happened in many genocides. So that is something that Canadians have to come to grasp with the reality of thousands and thousands of burials that we yet don't know uh, exactly where they are but how that impacts Indigenous people. Yeah, notwithstanding that, and notwithstanding what we know so far, Doctor, how do you respond when you hear some comments like from the, the Manitoba Premier and his, his, his newly minted Indigenous uh, minister that said these people had the best of intentions, they, they, they really were trying to do good. Uh, did they not get it? Well, there's a liability. There's a, li- there's a fiscal liability link mm-hmm. to, to a genocide, to crimes against humanity, but there's a reputation also. So Canada has this reputation of being this safe, democratic country with this wonderful history. What he's trying to do and what that government is trying to do is to uphold that. They're they're denying. You know, if they could come out and sit down and, and talk about the genocide in Canada and its impact on Indigenous people, that would serve the purpose of working with Indigenous people much better than denying it. Some of the stories we hear, I think, really underscore just what you said and how important it is. Uh, well, they're continuing with the uh, the work that's going on at the Kamloops uh, Residential School. Uh, there, there are stories, and this one, it breaks your heart, uh, of survivors talking about children as young as six years of age being woken up in the middle of the night to go and dig graves in the orchard. Uh, this, it, it, I think it speaks to the severity of what was going on in many of these facilities. It does speak to the severity, and this was discussed, this, this evidence came forward in the TRC. Mm-hmm. So we, we've always known of this horrific violence of sexual abuse at residential schools. We know that there's priests that have been charged and served time, and we know that the churches and the federal government kind of just went along with it. They didn't stop it. So just a quick example, Glenn Doherty was charged with sexually assaulting children at three different residential schools, and even after serving jail time, he was given a new post at another residential school. 
right? Why didn't the federal government step in years ago when it was obvious, because this was all in the press, that there not only was sexual abuse, but the church was was um, not paying attention. They were hiding it and continuing to hire these sexual abusers that had served jail time for abusing children. Well, and to that point, uh, I know one of the other contentious items, and I just wanted to get your read on this too, is having the records of what went on in those schools, who attended those schools. Uh, the church is very reticent to do anything about this, uh, not just in Rome, but even here, the Canadian Council of Bishops uh, don't seem to want to cooperate. Even the federal government is dragging their heels on this. How important is it to actually have a record of who was there? Would it not make it easier to, to, to have some closure for the families that are impacted, wondering whatever happened to their grandchildren or their, their children? Yes, it would be very uh, very good for people to know who went missing and who was at that school. Every single institution, including the federal government and churches, kept records because they spent money. Mm-hmm. Wherever they spent a penny, it was documented. So residential schools had to file yearly reports on how many children they had and who they were. I found my own grandmother's name in one of those reports from a residential school in Manitoba. So there are records, and there's no question that there was a genocide against humanity, against Indigenous people. So the government is withholding records that could support charges against them uh, for crimes against humanity. And they need to... It's pivotal that they open those records and share those records with communities from every single school. As you know, Dr., Indigenous leaders have set up a meeting with the Pope for later this year. I think it's going to be in November uh, in Rome. Uh, Are you hopeful uh, or optimistic that that there could be some resolution? I I know they would like to hear an apology from the Pope. I don't think that's forthcoming, but at least get some records or the records of what happened in these schools. Well, the church hasn't been forthcoming with records to date. There are um, a few different churches that are offering to share and open their records. Um, one church here in Ontario, no, has told me that they are open to sharing all of their records. So that's one of the next steps, and people don't realize how much work is involved in this. So if I want to look at uh, Shinwalk Residential School which is where my university is located, I'd really like to know who were all the children that were brought to that school, right? And is there a record, a documentation of their names? And then we can also say to the communities, who's missing? Do you know who's missing? You know, or how many are missing? And we can check those records. We, then we may know if we find unmarked burials who that might be. So important. Uh, you've done great work on this, and especially in exposing this and, and bringing it to our attention, Doctor. Thank you so much for this, and uh, hopefully uh, when we talk again shortly, it'll be uh, with some better news about what's going on, but we really do appreciate your time today. Well, thank you. Take care. Dr. Paulette Steves, uh, who has done some incredible work about this, and uh, we want to continue that. The, the, the most important element of this, and I guess the takeaway from this, is those records have to be made available uh, so we can get an understanding as to who's there and what happened to who was there. Uh, and so far, not a whole lot from uh, some of the, re- the religious leaders, especially the Catholic Church, that were involved in that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The World Health Organization uh, wants more access to virus data from China 
I'm not so sure about the chances of that happening, but uh, it's been a, a struggle to try to get data from uh, them. And, and there's a lot of speculation, of course, about the origin of, uh, of the coronavirus and what happened with COVID-19. Uh, a couple of days ago on the program, uh, Paul D. Thacker was on the program. He joined us and discussed his hypothesis of the, uh, the COVID-19 lab leak. There's an entire infrastructure right, who's pe- who, with people whose careers are based on studying these viruses. And if we found out that the people studying these viruses to try to prevent a pan- pandemic actually caused a pandemic, that's going to totally rewrite the type of funding that we're going to do for research. You're going to see careers are going to be tanked. People who are held up as, as heroes are now going to be looked upon as villains. So there's a huge financial interest for a whole lot of scientists to denigrate and to deny that this could have possibly happened because of science. There's a, a lot of speculation about that, that, that this was a lab accident, and I, that was denied by many, many people, of course. It seems to be getting some steam, but we're going to get into that in just a couple of seconds. Joining us to talk about uh, what's going on and what's going forward here and about getting that information, uh, please do welcome back to the program Dr. Joel Lechgen, who is a professor emeritus with the School of Health Policy Management and the Faculty of Health at York University. He is also a former consultant to the World Health Organization. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be here. Well, right off, the, right off the bat, from your experience, uh, the World Health Organization is asking for transparency uh, from China on this. What are the chances? Um, from the Chinese government, I would yeah. say it's pretty minimal. We, um, we've seen what the Chinese government is, is doing to suppress freedom of information in Hong Kong. Back when the um, pandemic started and an ophthalmologist in the country Um, tried to raise the alarm for it. He was forced to retract his statements. Um, He was censured by the Chinese government. Um, So I don't think that the chances of getting anything meaningful from the government are very good. Um, The Chinese um, state is quite powerful. And even if there's um, pressure from the European Union, the United States, Japan. Um, I think China can just shrug those off. There seems to be a growing uh, movement now towards this idea about the, the lab incident as opposed to uh, the story that we were initially told, I want to say 18 months ago, I guess now, uh, that this was just uh, from, from bats and transmitted to humans. And it, it started in China, certainly, but not from this lab necessarily. But but even the uh, the director general of, of the World Health Organization right now is suggesting that that's a distinct possibility. Uh, you know, of course, by his uh, history, he's, he's an epidemiologist who's worked in labs many times and said, look, accidents happen, and it may well have happened here. There's no proof that that that's it. But is it, is it a, a theory worth exploring, do you think, Doctor? Sure. There are three possible ways that this pandemic started. So one is that the virus jumped from directly from bats to humans. Um, but the bat population, where, the, <clears throat> where a relative of, of the COVID virus was discovered, is hundreds of kilometers away from um, Wuhan, where um, the epidemic appears to have started. So that's one theory. The second one is that it went from bats to another animal to humans. Um, That's what happened with SARS. But that intermediary um, animal hasn't been identified despite a lot of looking. And the third possibility is that um, 
it was being <clears throat> there was research being done on it in the lab in Wuhan, and there was a leak from the from the lab. And um, you know, there have been leaks of other viruses um, at various times over the past few decades. There was a leak um, of smallpox virus that ended up killing, I believe, a few people um, and other leaks. So that's not out of the question that it um, was being researched in the lab and then um, somebody made a mistake and it got out. I, I'm surprised at, at the momentum that seems to be gathering, though, Doctor, uh, behind that particular theory. I, I know that that was put out there. Well, Donald Trump actually put it out there, but he seemed to be more along the lines of accusatory, saying they did this on purpose. They developed it in the lab and they sent it out to the world, and, and so it was, it was immediately just, you know, dismissed. But now, uh, I mean, even President Biden has asked his security forces to investigate this and find out what's going on. The World Health Organization seems to be uh, considering this as a possible option. Uh, is that? based on any evidence do you think or is it it's still speculative none of this there's no definitive evidence for any of the three possibilities um, for the origin of this virus um, but what is what's partly what's driving this is the fact that there's no evidence for the first two so people how does the virus get from um, get from the um, bat caves, I'm not sure in which part of China, but travel hundreds of kilometers to get to Wuhan. Nobody knows how did, where's the intermediate animal? Um, nobody's been able to identify an intermediate. Um, so this is, um, this possibility is of a lab leak is gaining credibility. Um, and we know that um, <clears throat> that there is funding for what's called gain-of-function um, studies of viruses. Gain-of-function means you take a virus um, that is you think might have a potential to cause harm in humans, and then you play around with that virus um, to try and increase its pathogenicity, in other words, its ability to infect people and cause disease. And you see what it would take to do that. And the idea is that if you do that kind of research, then you're better prepared um, should something, should that actually come about, should that virus actually mutate. Um, and that kind of research was being funded in, um, apparently by the US Department of Defense in Wuhan. Um, was it being funded for this particular virus we don't know um but that raises that increases the possibility that something was going on in the lab and that there was um an accident that happened is that common practice the doctor that the, the testing the you know what if this let's try this that sort of thing with these viruses i mean i mean that's i mean they base movies on that you know but and then some nefarious character gets hold of the virus and well, well we've seen those plots a hundred times we didn't think it was ever going to happen in real life but it, uh, if if it is happening on a regular basis uh, does this happen are you surprised that this this there was a leak here or does that happen more than we know um <clears throat> Well, first of all, I don't know how often um, gain-of-function research is um, is being funded. That um, 
depends on who's doing the funding, how transparent it would be. Um, so if it's the equivalent of CIHR, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, um, or the NIH in the United States, you might be able to find that out. Um, if it's the Department of Defense, and you can see why um, the military might be interested in this, um, it's probably going to be a lot harder to figure out whether or not um, gain-of-function um, research is being funded and how often it's being funded. You just mentioned the Canadian arm of research uh, when it came to the sort of virus uh, study. Uh, the, of course, the two scientists that were s s quickly dismissed and, and apparently have ended up in China, uh, in Wuhan, as, as uh, some sources are telling us right now. Uh, can we connect the dots there, that, that there's, there's something going on there? Well, <clears throat> all I know is what's been in the media. Mm -hmm. And according to the media, these two people were um, being suspected of passing along intellectual property rights um, to the Chinese government. Um, there was no research that's at least no, no public knowledge that any um, research was being done on the um, SARS virus in the Winnipeg lab. Um, so I think that, well, it's concerning if these um, two Chinese scientists are actually, were actually um, passing on um, secret information to the Chinese government. Um, and that's just um, an allegation that none of that's been proven. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I don't think that what they were doing has anything to do with um, the current pandemic. I see. Uh, the other element to this is is the way that this was dismissed, because this whole idea about it emanated from the lab uh, was was surfaced, I guess, really in the early days of the pandemic uh, last year, uh, last uh, late winter and into early spring, uh, summarily dismissed by the Chinese government, uh, immediately saying, absolutely not, there's no way that possibly could have happened. Uh, and then these other theories that you've talked about uh, started to get floated around. Uh, to paraphrase Shakespeare, doth they protest too much? I think so. I mean, the Chinese government has even gone so far as to say um, that the, there's a possibility that the virus originated outside of China and got into China through frozen food, um, which I find a little bit um, difficult. Well, not a little bit, a lot, very difficult <laughs> to um, get, give any credibility to that. But <clears throat> any government, um, and it doesn't matter whether it's the Chinese government or the Canadian government, is pretty loath to admit that um, that it made very serious mistakes. I mean, we've seen that here in Canada with um, cover-ups of various kinds with the um, SNC-Lavalin and Jody Rayboat-Wilson. The government tried to mm -hmm. cover up what it had done to suppress um, her from moving forward with lost with a, a criminal activity against the company. So any government um, is not going to admit <clears throat> that it's um, made a serious mistake. And when you come to governments that um, don't respect rule of law like China, um, which, go, which have enormous power to keep things um, secret, 
then I don't think that what happened, what the Chinese government's um, position on this should be surprising to anybody. The uh, director general for the World Health Organization, of course, uh, uh, Director Tedros, has uh, suggested that, that this be a more transparent exercise. Uh, says that uh, the world is owed to, to the millions of people who died to know what happened uh, and where this came from. And now, I understand that there's certain elements of culpability here. That is why some people would pursue this. They want to be able to say, aha, uh, and there may be ramifications to that, I suppose. But is there a scientific reason to pursue what happened and how this happened and how it originated? Sure. <clears throat> I mean, we need to... That's one of the key things that are good, that behind trying to prevent any future pandemics is to understand the origin um, of ones that we've already had. So if this was um, because of research on gain of function and then a lab leak, we might want to, or we should rethink funding gain of function kinds of research and then we have to understand what the mistakes were in the lab that allowed the virus to get out so we uh, so we can correct those mistakes not just in china but um in labs of similar nature the one in winnipeg um in canada um they're level four labs around the world and if they're doing the same things that were done in wuhan and um and there was a leak out of Wuhan, then there might be a leak out of Winnipeg, or there might be a leak out of any other level four lab um, if they're following the same procedures. So we need to know what those procedures were, where the mistakes were, were there people in Wuhan who weren't properly trained um, to be able to do this kind of work. Um, all of that's incredibly important um, because studying viruses is, is an important area of scientific research, but we have to do it with the utmost caution. You mentioned that, that some of these research studies are, are, done, are sponsored sometimes by, by state, by government, uh, maybe also by intelligence agencies. Uh, if you're floating the money for this, if you're cutting the check for this, uh, how informed are these agencies kept of the progress, or do they simply get a final report so you don't know the minutiae about how this happened or what may have happened here? Um, you're asking me a question that I'm afraid I, I don't have any idea about. I would assume that um, if you're funding secret research, though, that you want to know what's going on with that research. You're not mm -hmm. just waiting for a, um, a report at the end, but that's just speculation on my part. Well, speaking of speculation, let's assume that your theory and my theory is correct here, Doctor, and that the Chinese government will not be forthcoming. I know they have let some World Health Organization uh, people in to the Wuhan lab uh, just a few months ago, but uh, as we were told later on by uh, by Mr. Tedros, uh, they saw what they, what they wanted us to see, and that's all there was to it. You didn't really get to go into the nuts and bolts. Is, is that as good as it's going to get, and is this going to simply be, remain a speculative exercise? Um I think so. I mean, we'll have to see what happens with the um, with with the inquiry that um, Biden has um, ordered. I think that he asked for a report within 90 days. Um, he did that in sometime in May. So I would expect that that report or at least a redacted version will be released um, 
probably around the end of August. Um, so we might get some be better ideas um, based on that, but without actually having any access to the records of the lab in Wuhan, um, we're, um, we're never going to know for sure what really happened. Doctor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program and get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for this today. Okay, my pleasure, and I hear you're going on vacation, so have a good time. <laughs> I will. Thank you. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks again, Doctor. All right. Bye-bye. Dr. Joe Lechkin, a professor emeritus at the School of Health Policy at uh, York University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.